Hello, this is Richard. Welcome to another episode of Zero to Something. Thank you so much for joining me this week. On today's podcast, I'm very excited to have Peter King. Now, if you're not US-based, you might not know who Peter King is. He is probably the most successful sports journalist in America. He writes a column that gets about a million and a half views every single week. He is on TV. He used to be on HBO. He's now on NBC. He covers the National Football League. And I know what you're thinking. If you're not a fan of the NFL, this might not be the podcast for you. But we actually don't dive that deep into American football. We do a lot of talking about Peter's history, about the drive that got him to where he is, about how he became so successful. We do cover a little bit of American football stuff, but you can feel free to fast forward through that because we're talking about how this guy, Peter King, got to be the most successful person at an incredibly competitive job. So it's really interesting for anybody who is looking at something like that or anybody who's interested in writing or anybody who's interested in the sports. So I really hope you enjoy the episode. If you want to uh, follow me on Twitter, it is at underscore R Howard. Peter is at Peter underscore King. And please rate and review and subscribe to the podcast. Thank you so much. So yeah, so the, like the the conceit of the of the podcast really is kind of finding out what drives and what motivates the I guess the most successful creative people. And I think I think it would be fair to say that you are one of, if not the most successful sports journalist in the U.S., which is you know a pretty I guess heady title. And I wonder, do you have any idea kind of what motivates you? Whether there's li- this little like voice at the back of your head that just kind of keeps you going and never lets you rest. Do you have any idea where it comes from? Well, thank you for the kind words. I, you know, when I was very young, I was I was lucky. When I was about ten or eleven years old, I knew pretty much what I wanted to do. I was a very big baseball fan, and I always thought if I couldn't play for the team I like, the Boston Red Sox, well, maybe I could write about them. And so I just started off at a very young age, pretty much enjoying the written word. I come from a family of readers, and my father always had a lot of newspapers in the house. And so it just, from an early age, I was fortunate. When I when I talk to college kids today, I, I feel bad, honestly, because so many of them, and rightfully so, it's hard when you're 20 years old to know what you want to do for the rest of your life. And yeah. I'm fortunate because when I was 20, I was, you know, pretty much ready to do what I was going to do for the rest of my life. But, you know, I think the other aspect of that is that you have to be willing to be an open book, especially today. You know, when I was, when I went to college in the seventies, you, I went to college to be a newspaper journalist. That's what I wanted to be. And I always thought I'll get a job and that's what I'm going to do until the day I retire. I'm going to work for a newspaper. And and it and it pretty much was that but i don't know maybe 15 years into my career television and radio became very very prominent and not saying you had to do it but if if you were going to advance in your field you know doing some television really helped you and then after that when the internet came almost everything you, you had to be used to and ready for almost everything 
podcasting. Yeah. Well, it was a podcasting. I didn't, nobody even knew what that was even 10 years ago, probably. But I just think the other part of being successful in the media today is you don't have any idea five, 10, 15 years down the road what form the media is going to take, what medium you're going to be using to tell stories. So I think I've always been sort of a, you know, a, a person who's open to new ideas and to new things. Yeah. And when I think about that, you know, I kind of think if somebody wanted to be in particular a newspaper journalist now, there's probably, you know, it's probably much, much harder than it was when you were coming out of, of college or university. Yeah. But if they, if they want to have an audience to talk about sports, then there's so many more platforms now yeah. that they could, you know, they could they could have their own podcast. They could do a one minute TikTok show that could have, you know, a million viewers every yeah. day or every week or whatever. So I guess it's just it's I guess staying at the front of whatever is is kind of current and new and and being open to the different platforms. Yeah, and I I also think one of the one of the most important things you can do in this job, honestly, is to have an open mind because yeah. really, you know the. The, you need to have information to be able to tell a story. And so you need to have access to that information. You know, I need to be able to call important people in the NFL uh, to be able to talk to them about professional football. And that's, if I don't have that, I'm not going to be able to survive for very long. So I think that also is part of the currency of doing the business, the ability to build relationships and the ability to talk to people you know, and, and, and also to keep current, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle right now of doing something with uh, a young quarterback from Brigham Young University, who's going to be a very high pick in this year's NFL draft. I never met him. I don't know him, but you know, you people in professional sports turn over a lot. So you have to, you have to make sure that you have a, you have a pathway to being able to talk to them and get to know them a little bit. Yeah, and and for you in particular, was it always sports? Because I, you know, I did I did my little bit of research, and I I saw that your first job, your first journalism job, I think you were over in the Netherlands, yeah. and your first story was covering actually a, a shipwreck. I covered a shipwreck. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I I never thought I was going to be a sports writer. Really, I mean, I wanted to, but when I got out of college, I just I needed a job. I was going to take a job. I thought maybe I would cover politics or you know. It really didn't matter. But yeah, my, my first job out of Ohio University, we, we had a great foreign internship program. I went to a, a college in Ohio and we had a great foreign internship program that after we graduated, they gave full paid internships to 10 students, 10 journalism students, and placed them at news bureaus all over the country. So I was at the Associated Press in the Amsterdam in Amsterdam. And, uh, you know, very early on, maybe two weeks into it, there was a big shipwreck in Rotterdam. 39 people, I think, died. And I ended up going there for two or three days and just writing about this horrible story. And, you know, it's, you're fortunate if you end up in a country that speaks a different language, if you can find people who speak your language. And luckily in the Netherlands, there's a lot of people there who speak English. Or else I would have been trouble. I just in trouble. I just I got off the train, and I mean, I, you know, what are you going to do? You just have to have to find somebody who can explain in English what happened to you know with this ship. But but I think I think that particular job was very was very important for me because you know you land at Schiphol Airport in 
in Amsterdam and you, you know, you go to this kind of, I stayed at a boarding house, college boarding house, and, you know, nobody is saying, gee, what can we do to help you? You know, you've got to sort of make your own way. And that was a, that was really good in so many ways, you know, dropping into, into a new place and being able to survive and hopefully flourish. But that was a, that was a really fun thing to do. Was that your first time kind of outside of the country? Dropping your state into yeah, into I had never been. No, I had never been outside the country before. I had never been. I grew up in this in Connecticut, a little state in northeastern United States, and the farthest away from my home I had ever been is my college, Ohio, which was I don't know six hundred miles away, and I yeah. had never really been anywhere. And so yeah, it was it was a big it was a big deal to just be dropped in the middle of the Netherlands and say, hey, do this job. And so you just yeah. do it. You just learn how to do it. How long were you in Holland? Three months. Three months. Okay. And then I went back and got another job working for the Associated Press in Columbus, Ohio. And then I started my first sports writing job in Cincinnati, Ohio, in March of 1980. And then, you know, you end up just climbing the ladder. And did you, so when you got that first sports writing gig, did you think that was going to be, you know, I'm going to climb the ladder at the paper, I'm going to become the lead sports journalist at at this paper, maybe get to kind of like a national paper, or was it just focused on kind of doing the job at that time? That's, I'm very, I don't know, I don't preach about a lot of things, but I always preach, do the best job you can do today, wherever you are, and if you're good enough, a better job will find you. I found that my whole life. I never sought jobs my whole life. I I never did. I've never been one of those to send a lot of resumes out. I mean, when I got back from from Holland in in very early 1980, I needed a job, so I was sending resumes everywhere. And but that's the really the last time I ever looked for a job in my life. I've yeah. always just you know people have have you know talked to me about jobs. I've never pursued them. And that isn't to say that it's a bad idea to pursue jobs. My whole thing is in this business, in the media business, it's a it's a business where if you're good, people will find you. And yeah. so that's kind of how I always uh, approach my job. And then so you were in the in the newspaper business, you went to Sports Illustrated, which is, I guess, so for, for anybody that's not American, could you describe like kind of how big Sports Illustrated is over there? Well, as an institution. You know, Sports Illustrated was birthed in 1954 as America's first weekly sports magazine. And uh, it got to be very, very big, I would say, in the 70s and 80s and 90s. It was, you know, it basically set the agenda in the sports writing and sports media world. You know, at one yeah. point, I would say mid to late 80s, early 90s, Sports Illustrated and ESPN were equals. ESPN and it's, you know, it's sort of on the corporate level, tried to crush Sports Illustrated for years. And because they viewed SI as the biggest competition. And so print products now everywhere are struggling. And Sports Illustrated is no different. It now is a monthly and it's really fighting for survival now. But I think it's suffering what all print products are suffering all over the world, quite honestly. In the last 10 years, 1,800 newspapers in the United States have died. And so, you know, and and look, Sports Illustrated is not a newspaper, but in a similar fashion, 
It is the biggest sports magazine, obviously, in America. And I think people, just by the fact that they're getting their news in a different way now, it's just so much more difficult to do real high quality work at a print publication because not many people want to wait for a magazine and get it in their mailbox. And, you know, we used to, when I would cover a big football game in the U.S., I would file my story at probably 1 or one or 2 a.m. after the game was played on Sunday. It would get edited during the day. It would go to press, and it would land in people's mailboxes by Thursday afternoon. So what you're writing is not being read for another four days, and that's just yeah. so anti-2020 or 2021. You have been lucky enough to be able to build up the cachet that people will say, all right, it was a Peter King article. I'll, I will read the 10,000 words that are here because I know it's going to be interesting for me. And if you're brand new to journalism, yeah. it's probably it's really hard to kind of build that recognition, the cachet up, but the people will dive in and, and read the 10,000 word article. I think it's, I think also the other thing is, I bet very few people read my, I mean, I shouldn't, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I'm not one of those people who call the number numbers crunchers at NBC and say, hey, what's the average length of time people are spending on my column? And, and how many people are actually making it to the end of my column? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, one of the reasons why I don't ask is that I don't know what I would do differently. Not yeah. that, Not that I think it's the greatest thing in the world. I don't, but it's just what I do. And I'm not saying I... I do change. I change my column a little bit, maybe every year, every other year, I I do different things. But I do think that if you've read me for a long time, you know that I'm not going to just reinvent myself at age 63 and do something totally different. And it isn't that I have any opposition to doing that. It's just that this is kind of what I do. And if you like it, you read it. If you don't like it, you read something else or you don't read at all. He maybe yeah. just watch videos, but that's it's everybody is going to look at the information world a little bit differently. Like, you know, one of the things that I do during the day on Sundays, because there are so many pregame shows, you know, that are on television before the NFL games will start. And honestly, I just, I mean, I'm watching 10 hours, 11 hours of football every Sunday anyway. I can't get up at nine o'clock in the morning and watch four hours of pregame shows. So what I do is people I follow on Twitter who are really good at the information business, they'll all have their little 90 second segments on the news of the day. And I usually just click on those and, and, you know, get a very, very short take. I get the Cliff's Notes version of, of what, of what, people have said during the morning, but I, and I, so I find video to be of great value. You know, I love, I love video news snippets, but it's just not really what I do that well. And kind of going back a little bit earlier. So you were at Sports Illustrated, you, you know, a columnist within Sports Illustrated. And then I think it was 2013, you built up the MMQB within Sports Illustrated. What was it that I guess, kind of motivated you to do that because before it's just you you're writing the responsibility is only on you to write to produce good work now i guess there's editorial there's hiring there's managing a whole different skill set a whole different world you know so what kind of motivated you to do that and and i guess what did you learn from from doing that 
around 2011 or 12, I had lunch one day with someone from ESPN who was talking to me about a job when my, my contract expired. And he suggested uh, a separate, I guess you'd call it a microsite on pro football yeah. within ESPN. And I thought it was a great idea. And I started thinking about it. I sort of imagine it to be a little different than what they wanted. And I broached Sports Illustrated with it. And I said, I might, you know, I really might go do this. And, you know, if you want to do it, and if the money is similar, I, I would, I'd probably stay. So they agreed to do it. And what was really interesting about that is that you're, you said it exactly right at the beginning. My whole life until 2013, I was essentially an independent contractor. I had my beat. I was writing about pro football and, and I might've been at a place with a lot of employees, a lot of writers, but I wasn't really, I didn't work with them. I worked on my own. I wrote my own stories. So this was the first time in my life where I'd ever been on a, really on a team. And I was sort of the captain of the team. And it was really a lot of fun, quite honestly, because I, I wanted, I wanted to sort of have a chance maybe to mentor some young people in the business. And it's funny, they, Sports Illustrated gave me a salary cap and they said, you can hire two, three or four staffers, two, three or four writers, depending on how much you feel you'd have to pay them. And here are the benefits that you can offer. Here are all these things. So basically I hired three people and worked with them for a couple of years. We made a few changes, made some other hires. It's kind of funny. The one thing I learned from that is I really, really love the hunger of the 23-year-olds. And and at first, Sports Illustrated really didn't like me hiring people almost fresh out of college. A couple of people were fresh out of college because they they said it's not really the Sports Illustrated way and all that. And I got to realizing that I would rather have young and hungry people who were not very experienced, but were going to kill themselves to be good. And I really like that. But over the years, I did the the site for five years. And over the years, I just had a lot of fun, you know, working with some younger writers. And now I'm sort of watching them, you know, kind of spread their wings in the business and do some really good things. So it was, it was a really, really fun experience for me. I enjoyed it. And prior to that, I guess, what was your role with regards to kind of like mentorship? So you weren't obviously responsible for hiring young writers before the MMQB. No, were you, I never, I never was. No, I, I mean, if, if, if a, if a friend would ask me to help with something, I always would, but I never yeah. had that sort of role at all. And so that's why the MMQB I thought was, was a great experience for me because it just, it taught me essentially to that, you know, you can, you can sort of help some younger people prepare for some of the things that you saw very early in your career. So I, I really enjoyed that a lot. Plus, I think the one thing I really tried to do there is really tried to, I had a journalism professor in college who once said, your job is to take people where they can't go and tell them things they don't know. And which really is the role of any journalist, not just a sports journalist. And so what I really emphasized with the people on my staff, 
I mean, nobody in the NFL, nobody in our business ever did, ever really studied the officials and, you know, the referee and the, the seven officials during games. And so I got the NFL to agree to allow me to spend a week in the life of the seven officials in this one officiating crew. And they all have jobs during the week. They're all just yeah. normal guys during the week. And so that to me was incredibly interesting to see that, you know, one of them was, was a school teacher in this little town in Michigan. And I went up there, he's a widower, he's got three children. And every night he would come home from his teaching job. He would feed his kids. He would read to them. He'd do homework with them, whatever. And then he would put them to bed. And by like 930, he's sitting there and he's studying his NFL film for that weekend's games or that weekend's game that he was going to do. And those are the kind of stories that I think we did an awful lot of at the MMQB. They just sort of brought you in and showed you something about the NFL that you had never seen before. Yeah. And kind of picking up on, on that point, I heard you talk about the story you did. Um, so when Brett Favre went into rehab, he called yeah. you up and he, I guess, spilled his guts to you. And yeah. so one of the things that I want to know, first of all, that's incredibly interesting that you've built up this relationship with someone who's probably at the time, the, the most fa- one of the most famous guys in America, yeah. particularly the most, probably the most famous football player. When you build up these incredible relationships with, you know, at that time, Brett Favre, I think you probably have a very good relationship with Tom Brady now, who's maybe the greatest of all time. Do you ever worry about being too close with, with potential yeah. subjects, whether it's QBs, whether it's executives, people within the NFL? Yeah. It's, a, it's definitely a fine line. It always has been. And, you know, sometimes I feel myself getting too close to some people. Now, it's not so much today, even though, yes, I am fairly close to Brady. I'm not really, I'm not tight with him or anything. But of people in the media, I'm one of the closest people. But you're right. I think that was sort of tested later on in his life. I've gone without speaking to quite a few players over the years because I kind of laughingly, jokingly will say to him, you know, there's not always going to be nice things written about you. Toward the end of his career, I wrote some really bad negative things about Deion Sanders, for instance. And very late in his career, he was in Washington and I wanted to talk to him and he basically said, God bless you, but I'll never speak to you again, you know? And I knew what it was about. I had written some things that said he was slightly a charlatan, you know, but, but be that as it may, I think you, it it always is a balancing act. You want to get real close to a guy, but you don't want to get too close because at some point you might, you might want to have to write bad things. So the time you talked about with Favre was interesting because that, that was the first year I ever really got to know him. And that was his first MVP season, 1995. In the offseason following that, he was he basically was so hooked on Vicodin, this painkiller that I'm sure most people have heard of, but he was so hooked on it that he had to go into rehab. But the amazing thing about that story is he told me that, I forget, it was either on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. And at the time, in early 1996, there's no internet, or if there was an internet, it was so young that nobody used it. Yeah. And and so there was no other, we had no other outlet to use it. And I'm just praying that for a year, the next week, nobody really writes about this far story going into rehab and, and what happened to him. And it held for seven days. And when my story came out, it was, I mean, it was, I was, everybody in the country was quoting it, writing about it, everything like that. And 
and Favre was deep into a six-week rehab stint at that time and didn't say anything to anybody until he came out. So my words yeah. with him were the only words there were with the MVP of the National Football League for six or seven weeks. So that that kind of shows, too, how much the business has changed. And from your perspective, do you think it's a good thing? So forgetting the kind of the journalist side of things, do you think it's a good thing that the athletes themselves, through social media, have so much access to to the fans now and the ability to speak yeah. their own mind and, and kind of say what they want to say and how it wants to be said? I was in the middle of trying to do a story on somebody recently, and his agent broke the news to me, and he said... He's not going to talk to you because he's got, uh, he has a contract with so and so. He's going to get paid for his version of the story. And, and so he's not going to talk to sports writers. He's going to put out the story himself through this, yeah. this television outlet. And which, I mean, I never, I never get mad at things and I never say, oh, what a horrible thing has happened to our business and all that. If you could control your own message and if you were a huge star and you could control your own message and get paid to, to control your own message, why wouldn't you do it? So yeah. I don't think what players are doing is wrong. I, it's, it makes my job harder, but that's the way life is. It's, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't get mad about it. It's just, that's just the way it is. No, fair enough. And so you, like you mentioned, you know, you've been close with a lot of stars. Have you ever been starstruck? No, I don't. Let me see. I don't, I just don't ever remember thinking, holy crap, I'm talking to whoever. I, I don't know. I just, just never has been that way with me. I mean, when I was very young and got my job in Cincinnati, the baseball team there was huge. And so there were a bunch of players who'd won multiple World Series at the time. And meeting them for the first time was, it took me back a little bit, but, and I, I, I probably was a little bit nervous meeting them, but I've just never had any problem talking to somebody or asking yeah. some huge person a, a question. It just, I don't know. It's just part of the business. Doesn't phase you. No, fair enough. And, and then I guess, so you've spent, you know, decades around these incredible athletes and you, so you, every one of them is obviously ridiculously gifted athletically, but do you have any notion of what it is that makes someone, you know, that little bit extra special that just motivates them to, to maybe try harder, train longer, whatever it is that makes them even better rather than just kind of relying on those God-given talents? I think the best example is Tom Brady. He's not going to let somebody dictate how long he plays football unless, I mean, his father said recently, Tom's going to play until he stinks. And, yeah. you know, and so I think, I think that says it all. And, and what Tom Brady does is, you know, to, to give you an example, four years ago after, the, after New England, when he was playing in New England, when they beat Atlanta in the Super Bowl, they were behind 28 to three yeah. with about 20 minutes left in the game. And they came back and won that game. It's the biggest comeback in Super Bowl history. I asked him a day or two after the game, can I spend – I want to document how you made the greatest comeback ever happen. What exactly you did, all that. And he, he said, okay. And so we arranged to meet on Sunday. He has a sort of a getaway way out in Montana. And so I went out to Montana, uh, which is far from everywhere. And <laughs> so I went to Montana. And thing I'll never forget is going into his little, you'd call it a cabin, but it's 
that would be an insult to cabins. It just, it, it's, it's, it's quite a nice place. I go in there and when I'm walking in there, I look out and there, it, it, there's a lot of snow on the ground, but you could see that there is this rectangular long patch of field out just next to this, this home that he had way out in Montana. And he, and uh, so he was telling me, he said, yeah, it's a football field. And in the off season, when I'm here on vacation, I, I have some teammates come up here and we do off season practices here. And that's in addition to what he would normally do with his team in the off season. But it just, that really kind of just, you know, amplifies why he is who he is that he could be, he'd wake up on a morning. All, all football players basically get about six weeks in June and July, totally free. So, but he would wake up on a morning in late June and he'd go out and he would practice football for two and a half hours instead of being away from it. Because to him, practicing football was not, was not work. Yeah. It was joy. Truly it's joy. And, and so I think that's the way he's always been. And he's always been very determined to be the absolute best. Sometimes he isn't the best, but he has this determination to be the best. So I think you have to have this drive inside you that is unlike virtually anybody else in order to be among the all-time greats. You can have a lot of talent, but if you don't have something driving you, you know how hard it was for him this year, this season, to quarterback a new team with new players. He never met the majority of his teammates until about five weeks before the season started because of COVID. There were no organized practices at all in the NFL. And so the first time he ever got in the huddle was on August 14th. The first game of the season was on September 13th. So, I mean, he didn't even huddle with his teammates until a month before the season. And then he progresses, progresses, progressive, extra practice, extra practice, and they win the Super Bowl. I mean, it's a little bizarre, quite honestly, to, to think of him doing that in such a weird year. Yeah. And then on the flip side of that, are there any players that you've come across where the athletic ability is so unbelievable, but they just haven't had the drive and it's kind of driven you personally just a little nuts? And you're like, I if you just cared 10% more, you'd be amazing. Yeah. But you just, I don't know what is wrong with your head. It's interesting you ask that question because I think probably when you start to talk about that, the one player I really think of is Randy Moss. And okay. Randy Moss was this fantastic wide receiver. But And I think when he first came in the NFL, I wasn't convinced he loved football or would have a long career in football. But I think the longer he played and the more he realized what a unique, incredible talent he was, he started to say yeah. to himself, not only can I make an awful lot of money doing this, but I can go down in history as being one of the greatest to do it. So I think, I honestly think for Randy Moss, his love of the game grew as he realized yeah. how, how incredibly different he was in the game. And I, I think I think that that happens to quite a lot of people. I mean, probably the one guy who would stick out who was really good, but who just liked all the other aspects of football rather than just football is Johnny Manziel. He was a quarterback yeah. drafted in the first round by Cleveland who in 2014, maybe 13, who was a very, very 
exciting, fun player, but he just liked the nightlife. He liked everything else other than working at football. And yeah. I think he'd have been a great player if he actually really loved football as much as he loved all the other stuff. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And then kind of going to football, there's been, you know, I don't know if it's the last decade, maybe a little bit longer, a lot around, you know, head trauma, CTE, that kind of stuff. When did you notice that that was becoming a thing? And did that ever affect how you felt about football or how you covered football in any way? I think it became a thing about 10 years ago when you noticed that there were a lot of players who were really starting to present signs of head trauma and concussions and, and really big problems with life after football. And there's no question it bothers you. It really does. And I think, you know, I think the NFL had a sort of mental reckoning about 10, 12 years ago when they figured that not only litigiously is this going to really hurt us and maybe even rob the game, you know, stop, make people stop playing the game. But I just think as far as having a little bit of a conscience, you've got to try to take care of the players in the game a little better. And I think it was around 2012 where there was a spate of injuries in a very short period of time, including one college player who was paralyzed in a game, Rutgers University player. But I do think that the NFL through starting really this year, position specific helmets, the fact that they do not allow the helmet to helmet contact that used to be allowed. I think the game's going to survive, but I do think that more and more and more of the heroes of the game from the 90s and early part of this century, before the NFL really got the sort of, you know, come to Jesus moment in their head, I think they essentially now are, they've woken up and yeah. they're really working at trying to make the game safer. And it wasn't always that way, but, and I'm not sure if they didn't do anything about it, if not only if the game would could survive, but if a lot of people who cover the game would have even wanted to cover such a, a violent sport that wasn't trying to do better with the physical condition of their players after football. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the thing with the helmets, because the helmet rules changed two years ago. And I think the, the last one out was Antonio Brown. And I was watching the hard knocks and you know, when he was in the Raiders or when he was in the Raiders for like a week and a half. And yeah. the thing that amazed me was that I always assumed, and that maybe, maybe I got the wrong end of the stick when I watched it, that players would have, you know, new helmets, new shoulder pads, new everything for every game. Like basketball players have, you know, new sneakers for every second game or third yeah. game. But they, they were like, oh, this is the helmet he's had since college. And you're like, that was like 10 years ago. It's the same helmet it's every ridiculous. game. It's, they never, they, I mean, the NFL woke up about helmets two or three years, three or four years ago, probably. But it's, it's ridiculous. It lasted that long when, yeah. I mean, there are people, you know, three and four years ago who might've been 10 year veterans in the NFL. And they were wearing the exact same helmet that they got. Joe Staley with a left tackle for the 49ers played ahead a long career until his last, I think, three years in the NFL. He basically wore the same helmet that he had that he had worn in college. And it's just just seems very just doesn't seem that smart to me personally. But, you know, that's the way it yeah, was. No, for sure. Which leads me to. So I have two ideas for they're probably very bad ideas, but I want to run them past you anyway. And the first one is no helmets. 
because and you know I'm, I'm sure people have, have kind of mentioned so i played rugby when i was a kid i played rugby up until kind of like school there's no helmets in rugby so you right. never think about using your head as a weapon or i actually don't think it's a bad I, I don't i don't think it's a bad idea okay. at all i i don't i now the game would change yeah that's all the game would change the the problem as i see it with no helmets is that in rugby it's a now look i've watched rugby but i certainly don't know it very well okay but in the nfl there is the potential for blind collisions i think much more often than there is in rugby you know a wide receiver is running at full speed 40 yards down the the field and he dives for a ball if there is a defensive back who dives for the same ball and he's coming maybe from the side and they have a collision and their heads hit I mean, i'm not saying somebody could die but somebody could get very seriously injured if they don't have any yeah. helmet protection but but again i think that is an extreme aspect of it i don't think it's a bad idea and i think the nfl has basically dismissed that out of hand i think it's actually worth studying so because the, the i came to that i don't know if you ever read freakonomics years ago when it came out but they had i've um, read it yeah yeah. So they had this study, I think it was in New Hampshire with like seatbelt, uh, the seatbelt law that came in and they found that people that wore seatbelts actually drove more rapidly because they felt safer because they had the seatbelt on. They drove faster. Yeah. There was higher incidence of, of drunk driving. And for me, I, I've never played uh, NFL, but I imagine that if I had the helmet on, I would feel safer. I would probably do yeah. things that were more dangerous. There are some people who use it as, you know, a targeting thing. So, I, you know, I, for, for me, just like if you take it off, they, they, they can't have that, that aspect. And then this, so the second question or the second idea that I have, and this kind of comes down to something, I guess it's been a, a bugbear for you, particularly this offseason, which is the lack of black head coaches being hired. And that, that in my mind, stems from, you know, a lack of, racial equality in in the ownership ranks and so so yeah. one of the things that that i was thinking yeah. and this is because I, I worked in in tech for for a bunch of years every tech company in america every tech company in europe part of your salary part of your compensation is shares is equity right so that you own a little bit of the business why couldn't for for those players that like the patrick Mahomes who are going to have like a 10-year contract why couldn't they say all right it's you know, you're going to be the foundation of our of our of our franchise for ten years, possibly longer. But you know, if you meet these criteria and you're here for that long, you have you know shares one percent, two percent, three percent ownership of the Kansas City Chiefs. And and you know, you get a player like Patrick Mahomes that owns a five six percent or something. Deshaun Watson of the Houston Texans hadn't messed that up so bad that he could be there for he could have been there for ten years, have a similar sort of view. And then you have players who are African American who have some ownership. It's really that's interesting. I never thought of it before, but I think the biggest thing I would probably think of is, okay, Kansas City is owned by this fellow named Clark Hunt. His dad, Lamar Hunt, founded the American Football League, which later co-founded the American Football League, which later merged with the NFL. And basically has, you know, the Hunt family has owned this franchise for 61 years. And they've had some great teams in Kansas City. So I'm just sort of thinking about your idea and they've had a lot of great players in the history of their franchise. So I yeah. don't really know how it would work if Patrick Mahomes is tremendous football player and very famous, but there are also some really good unfamous veteran great players who played for the Chiefs. Yeah. So how do you determine who gets 
2%? How do you determine who gets 6%? How do you determine who gets no percent? So, and, and then you're saying to Clark Hunt, you know, his franchise now is worth, I would guess, oh, I don't know, maybe $250 billion. I'm sorry, $250 million, $300 million. I don't even know, but it's worth a lot of money. My point is, you know, it's hard to say right now at this point, okay, so Patrick Mahomes is going to be really good. And when he finishes his career, he'll own 5% of the franchise. It's hard to figure out how that would square economically with all the other great players who've ever played there. And to say to Clark Hunt, oh, by the way, this franchise, the you know, Patrick Mahomes now owns 7% of this franchise. It's, it's interesting. I just, I don't see how it would work. I, I, like, I haven't worked out all of the, all of the kinks, obviously. It's just for, for me, you know, every, just about every company that you work for, they have an ownership structure in place where having shares is part of the compensation package, you know, particularly, particularly in technology. It's different. Let's just say, let's just say you work for Microsoft and there's a yeah. stock ownership program. Are you ever going to go in, are you ever going to own one one hundredth of 1% of what Bill Gates owns or who yeah. I don't even, or Jeff Bezos, I don't even know who owns Microsoft, but I get it's still Bill Gates, right? Bill Gates was the founder. Um, Satya Nadella is the current CEO. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't, but you you get the point. You know, no, it's I, easy to buy shares in a company that's worth as much money as that is worth, and but it doesn't actually mean that you're ever going to own the team. You know, no, for, own like seven percent of the team, probably. You know, anyway. no, of, of of course, but it's just it's just for kind of having a, a different voice in in the I guess in the boardroom. Okay, so I, I want to ask one more question and then kind of dive into the I guess the the speed round of of just a couple of last good because we got to hustle. Um, okay, all right. So I guess you've been at the center of sports for decades now, which I guess used to be the thing prior to politics that people used to be most tribally angry about. Now it's it's probably politics. Have you seen a difference? And you've you've talked about kind of I guess your political views in in the in your in your writing. Have you seen a difference in the way people interact with you? Have they got angrier, or are sports fans just as angry as ever? And it's really kind of they're also funding their anger. People are very angry. People are always very angry whenever I write about politics. I, I get twenty, thirty emails to stop writing about politics, write about sports, and honestly. You know, probably one out of every three columns, I'll have 10 sentences about the state of our country. Yeah. Um, so I would just bet that over the last year, much less than 1% of my total words have been political. But yeah. people just pick that out. I think people are just angry in general. And it used to be if you were really angry about something I wrote, you would sit down and you would write a letter to the editor of Sports Illustrated. You didn't have any way to email me or, you know, to have any contact with me on Instagram or Twitter. You didn't. Now, five minutes after one of my stories is posted at NBCSports.com, you know, there's 100 reactions and 10% of them at, at the very least tell me you have no idea what you're talking about, you fool. It's, yeah. That's just the world we live in now. Yeah. Okay. Because I've used up enough of your time. I'm going to ask you the, the lightning round only four questions okay so everybody at the end of podcasts loves a recommendation a book a tv show a movie i'm interested in your anti-recommendation what should people avoid because they've got better things to do with their time i mean this is a terrible thing to say but i mean (laughs) i just think people 
I think people should avoid getting so angry about sports that it makes it not very much fun. Yeah. You know, right now the Philadelphia Eagles are just in the toilet. They're just, they won the Super Bowl three years ago, but they've been totally dismantled. Things are going horrible in the organization. They fired their coach. They traded their quarterback, everything like that. And somebody in their organization told me recently, you know, there is so much hate in our community right now for our team. It's like we never won the Super Bowl. And I find that incredibly sad because when the Eagles won the Super Bowl, they had a parade and 2 million people were out there on Broad Street in Philadelphia crying, saying this is the greatest moment of my life. I mean, you know, look, sports is really, really important, but let's, let's just relax about making it the most important thing in your life. If that's the way I feel, i and over the years, it sort of has bugged me that it seems to just be getting more and more important and people seem to get angrier and angrier. Okay. Second question is what is something kind of relatively important ish that you've changed your mind on recently? Well, I've changed my mind. I'm a voter for the pro football hall of fame. And the one thing that I take pride in when I vote for the pro football hall of fame is that I have strong feelings about certain players and coaches and know that I'm going to vote for them or not vote for them. But I take great pride that in the last few years, I've changed my mind on a couple of players. And I think it's been influential in those players, either getting higher up the ladder and getting toward getting in the Hall of Fame, or maybe actually getting them into the Hall of Fame. And I take pride in that because the one thing I don't like about, especially about politicians, that they'll sit in a room and listen to logic for five hours and still vote the way they were going to vote when they walked into the room. Because honestly, sometimes you feel that way strongly, but if you hear evidence evidence to suggest you should change your mind and you don't change your mind, I think that's, that is not, is not a great human trait. We should all think. And honestly, that, that is, I would say three or four votes in the pro football hall of fame voting. I've changed my mind. And quite honestly, I'm happy I did. Good. Okay. And then second last question, you know, you've done, I guess, a bunch of interviews of interviewing people. You've also been interviewed a lot as well. Is there any question that you haven't been asked ever that you thought you would be asked or that you've wanted to be asked? What is the role of your parents in your, in whatever professional accomplishments you've had? Nobody's ever asked me that question. Really? I imagine that was, you you mentioned at the beginning that they were readers as well. Got a lot of newspapers. My mother would only watch like, like, quiz shows, game shows. She wouldn't, she didn't waste her time, you know? Yeah. She had to raise four kids. And so if she had some leisure time, she was reading a book, she was doing a crossword puzzle, or she was watching, you know, a quiz show where her brain could be tested. She was a huge, huge reader. And my father, even though he was an iron worker, he, he would, on Saturday and Sunday, he would read a good portion of each day, you know, when they were his off days. So I think just the example that my parents set really meant a lot to me and what I, I've been able to accomplish in my life. That's awesome. Last question. It has been, it's been amazing to talk to you, to talk about your career, what has motivated you, the different aspects of it. Hopefully you've enjoyed the conversation as well. Mm-hmm. Who else would you like to hear on a podcast like this? I'd really, there's some, I think there's some really, really smart people in the NFL and who have done great things in the NFL. Like for instance, I think Paul Tagliabue, the former commissioner of the NFL, is a really interesting person 
in all aspects of life. And he's just a very different kind of commissioner. He wasn't a football nerd. And so I'd love to, I'd love to hear an hour with Paul Tagliabue. And, you know, there's some really interesting players over the years who sort of just sort of left the spotlight and I don't want to say faded away, but kind of just faded away. And I mean, like, for instance, I think one of the really interesting players who I covered was a linebacker for the Bengals. His name was Reggie Williams. He retired and he went on to become a Cincinnati City Council member. He's very politically savvy, just a very bright guy, went to Dartmouth and Ivy League school. You know, what's hard to what's hard to sort of cut down is who wouldn't I like to hear from? There's another, there's a retired quarterback named Sage Rosenfels, who's really a smart guy, a deep thinker. He'd be a great guy to, to, to listen to. But I just think there's 1,900 people in the National Football League, uh, players every year, and there's a lot of turnover every year. Man, I, there's there's probably a 1,000 that I say, well, he'd be really interesting to listen to for an hour. <laughs> you know, so you you really, you could almost, I hate to say, you could almost throw a dart and land, a, and land on a good one. Absolutely. Peter King, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Hey, my pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thank you.